Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the shameless display of Republican fealty to billionaires, with Senator Lindsey Graham and Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee blocking efforts to have Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo testify about lavish and unreported gifts to Justices Thomas and Alito. Joining us is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Then we'll get a preview of Wednesday's meeting between President Biden and China's Xi Jinping at the APEC summit just underway in San Francisco. Joining us to discuss what can be done to reverse the downward spiral of relations between the world's two largest economies is Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley, and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society Center for U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, a novel of exile. Then finally, we'll get a local perspective on Joe Manchin, who has already sabotaged Biden's legislative agenda and, now having left the Senate, has undermined the Democrats' slim majority and is poised to end Biden's presidency by likely running as the third-party candidate under the No Labels banner. Joining us is James Van Nostren, who until recently was a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law and is the author of The Coal Trap, How West Virginia Was Left Behind in the Clean Energy Revolution. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. Thank you so much for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And going back to you, to the Senate Judiciary Committee, where you used to serve, it's um, the Democrats have been trying to get Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo to testify about their relationship to the Supreme Court justices who appear to have been captured by billionaire money. And uh, Lindsey Graham, the minority chair, has thrown a spanner in the works. Uh, what's the next move on the part of the Democrats? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, the Democrats um, announced uh, with the chairman, Dick Durbin, that they were going to have a vote in the Senate Judiciary Committee on subpoenas for uh, billionaire Harlan Crow and billionaire trust fund operator uh, Leonard Leo to look into their uh, role in sort of uh, providing and not sort of, but actually providing an, an array of gifts and travel to Clarence Thomas. And um, the Republicans came to the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, meeting on Thursday, um, and they uh, basically filibustered that um, that vote. They blocked um, the effort to have that vote. They said they were going to introduce something like 80 amendments to stop it. And so the next step is for the Senate Judiciary Committee to um, notice another um, meeting and um, uh, move forward with that vote. So hopefully that will happen this coming Thursday. So do you think that the public can see the obvious here, Lisa, that Lindsey Graham and his Republican colleagues are protecting 
these billionaire donors. This is all about serving the donors. I mean, it's just naked and blatant that they don't want to inconvenience Harlan Crow uh, because they, they need his money. And they certainly don't want to inconvenience Leonard Leo because he's sitting on $1.6 billion of, of campaign funds. Well, it, it, I think it's obvious to people that this, uh, the Republicans are determined to try to protect their benefactors and people who have aided them um, in a variety of ways. Harlan Crow is someone who's been uh, a, a significant funder of the Republican Party going back uh, at least nearly 20 years now. And Leonard Leo has played an instrumental role in uh, packing the U.S. Supreme Court and also targeting other states, other courts at the federal level as also the state Supreme Courts, um, as well as state attorney general positions. Um, and so I think people do see it. And, and the polling shows that people want the Senate Judiciary Committee, Committee to act. They want these, these issues investigated. And um, as these stories have unfolded, you know, people see this as corruption. Um, you know, what the revelation about Thomas and also Alito have just been shocking and, you know, are, are unacceptable. But um, it is the case that the Republicans are trying to uh, sort of misdirect and, uh, you know, try to point people um, to other things. I think at one point they one of the members, uh, uh, Marsha Blackburn, said that she wanted to have a um, subpoena for Jeffrey Epstein's travel logs. Yeah. I, I mean, that should have happened a long time ago, but that has nothing to do with um, what's happening here in terms of the subpoenas for Clarence Thomas, Thomas's benefactors, um, Leonard Leo and uh, Harlan Crow, And, you know, that $1.6 billion fund that uh, that now Leonard Leo has control over, you know, can't be spent spent directly on a campaign, but it certainly uh, appears to be the kind of money that's going into influencing the outcomes of um, electoral campaigns. That's what Leo has been doing for years now. So on the Supreme Court itself, though, my understanding is that there's four of the nine justices who are open to some kind of ethical standards. As the chairman, Dick Durbin, keeps saying, the highest court in the land has the lowest ethical standards. So they're not even held to the standards of uh, the rest of the justices lower down. So is that your understanding, that there are four of the five that are open to an ethical regime for the Supreme Court? There, Yes, there have been some statements uh, by some of the members of the Supreme Court that they would support a binding ethical code. Right now, the Supreme Court has no um, ethical code, unlike every other judge in the country, including all the other federal judges who are governed by the, the Code of Conduct for U.S. judges. But there are laws governing the U.S. Supreme Court's conduct, including the Government and Ethics Act of 1978, which is the... Um, is the rules or sets the rules on gifts for anyone who serves in the federal government who's paid by our tax dollars. That's the form that the Supreme Court justices fill out annually and attest to the accuracy of those forms under civil and criminal penalties. And that's uh, the form that we know um, that Clarence Thomas has uh, failed to failed to fill out uh, in new, in numerous ways accurately. Um, and I think that he's affirmatively misled the American people on this issue and numerous other issues. So can he be prosecuted or sanctioned? Yes, I think that he can be. And I think the Judicial Conference should refer um, his failure to uh, honestly answer those forms to, to disclose um, those gifts of travel. Uh, he should, they should refer that to the Justice Department for an investigation and I think for prosecution. I think that when you look at um, Clarence Thomas's um, activities, it's just stunning to me, not only that uh, matter, but other matters in terms of his fitness for the bench. This is a man that we now know through the reporting of Politico was um, sat on the Citizens United case, cast the deciding vote in the Citizens United case from 2010, even though his wife had just received nearly $500,000 from Harlan Crow to fund a 501c4 advocacy organization that was poised to take advantage of the decision he was about to issue in that Citizen United case. That's just a clear cut case to me of corruption, uh, where his nest is being feathered by money that's gonna fund his wife's salary, by his billionaire benefactor, and he's issuing a ruling that directly benefits um, his wife and that operation that he, um, without a doubt, knew she was getting that money. She actually filed the 
forms for that organization on New Year's Eve on an expedited basis. There's no scenario in which they're not celebrating her new operation on uh, New Year's Eve in 2009 with the Supreme Court decision on Citizens United about to come down uh, just 20 uh, days later in Citizens United. And that's just the least of it. We know that he refused to recuse himself uh, from the challenge over access to um, communications with the White House, even though there's no doubt in my mind that he knew that his wife, uh, Jenny Thomas, was texting uh, Mark Meadows and trying to get the election overturned. I mean, this, uh, this justice is corrupt through and through. And if we had a House of Representatives that was not captured by the far right, I would like to see impeachment proceedings begun against Clarence Thomas. So it's pretty clear that the Supreme Court has been captured by the plutocracy, or at least the right-wing plutocracy. It's also incredibly clear that the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, led by Lindsey Graham, are totally in the pocket of billionaires. The fealty that they show towards their donors is just pathetic. It's shameless. And, you know, again, I hope that people notice it. But the decisions, the bad decisions keep coming. And what's your sense of what happened in the hearing on United States versus Rahimi? Because this is just insane. Bruin, uh, which followed Heller, Heller was a disastrous decision that completely turned the Second Amendment on its head. The state shall have well-regulated militias being necessary for the security of a free state. The citizens' right to bear arms shall not be infringed. So the first part of it is well-regulated militias for the security of a free state. Well, we are no longer secure and we're no longer free anymore because of the proliferation of, of assault rifles in particular. And this started with Heller, but then it was put on steroids by the Bruin decision, which is completely insane, but it's because of these originalists on the right wing uh, that dominate the Supreme Court. They basically have taken the Second Amendment back to when it was ratified in 1791, right? And now... They're dealing with a 2023 case of an of a crazy guy, Rahimi, who just shoots people and shoots, even shot up a police car. I mean, the guy is just a menace. And they took away his gun, but now they are going to rule on whether his firearms, and they, these include assault rifles, should be returned to him in spite of the fact that he's got his wife or a girlfriend or whoever has put out a restraining order on him, which is pretty understandable since he's shot up about, uh, I think, about five or six different incidents in and around Arlington, Texas. Well, it's it's extraordinary, as you point out, Ian. The fact is, is that John Roberts is at the root of the um, the just extraordinary failing of this Supreme Court to honestly interpret the Constitution and to follow the law. That case in Heller that you mentioned, which was which came shortly after John Roberts was confirmed to the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, is a decision that overturned a century or more of law, um, laws on the books that you know made it plain that, of course, government can regulate uh, firearms. Um, that language that you referred to in the Second Amendment, you know, talks about uh, regulating those firearms to protect uh, our a free state. Um, and this Supreme Court has basically tried to erase those words, the, rel- the well-regulated militia language, um, and supplant that with a notion, an extremist notion, that was put forward only by um, the sort of the, the right wing part of the NRA, not even the original vision of the NRA, um, to claim that, you know, they have to we have to strike down all these firearms laws or, or have the ability to do so um, uh, to take away the rights of cities, for example, to bar um, deadly um, weapons or to limit access to deadly weapons that are killing people. Um, and as you point out, then just in the last uh, the last decision cycle, uh, the John Roberts Court again struck down longstanding laws about um, whether people can have, you know, can conceal their weapons. Um, and here they are taking up a case um, in which uh, this, as you point out, this um, man has a, has a documented history of violence, a document history of endangering people's lives through firearms. And they are considering whether to strike down laws that would um, limit our ability to have protective orders that would you know, basically bar people who have a protection order for threatening violence against a family member or someone else from having access to guns. When we know, as a, in, in fact, that um, people who are subject to these domestic violence orders are violent. Uh, that's the nature of the protective order. And that um, many people, in particular women, um, are murdered 
by men who are un, are subject to such orders, which is why um, there's been a, a set of rules to try to protect such people from accessing firearms. And now we're in this uh, bizarro land that John Roberts and the right-wing court have created in which supposedly we're stuck with whatever they, they think the rule might have been or should have been in 1791 when there were no assault weapons, when there were no protection orders, when you know people were traveling by horse and buggy. Um, this regressive thing that they call originalism, this repressive, regression, regressive, backward thinking that this court is trying to, to shackle us with in the year 2023 has to be rejected by the American people. It's extreme. Uh, it's wrongheaded. It's destructive. And this court, this Roberts court, is already responsible for unleashing and increasing the potential for people to lose their lives from gun violence because of the reckless decisions they've already issued as a result of this reckless adhe adherence to this made-up philosophy of so-called originalism, which they're now trying to call constitutionalism, which is really, which really should be called backwardism or regressivism because it's just so out of place in our constitution, so inconsistent with our um, legal precedents and incompatible with having a modern, uh, a modern democratic society. Right, but they're going back to an era of white men of property only were allowed to vote. And that's their mentality, isn't it? That only the Harlan Crows and, and rich land-owning white men should vote. And women have no rights, let alone any rights to protection from domestic violence. The only difference is in 1791, they had muskets. And now they have essentially machine guns. They have assault rifles, military weapons. And ever since Heller and Bruin... There's been an amazing uptick in mass shootings. They almost happen every day in this country. You can trace it directly back, the escalation of it, directly back to the Supreme Court decision. So then you have to ask yourself, is there any recourse? I mean, I don't know what planet these people are on, what kind of cynical idea. This is the only country amongst the advanced uh, democracies that arms the peasants. I mean, what, what is that about? Well, you know, I mean, I, th I think it, it, this question, this notion that the um, assault weapons ban that was, you know, passed in 1994 and then expired under Republican control under George W. Bush uh, some, was some sort of violation of some fundamental right is absurd. Um, you know, the, the U.S. Justice Department um, over many years entertained numerous uh, questions about the scope of the Second Amendment. People were writing in basically saying, um, well, if I have a right to bear arms or the ability to have the equal equal weapons of the government, can I have a nuclear bomb, a neutron bomb? Uh, can I have chemical warfare? Can I have a tank? Can I have, you know, a jet uh, that shoots missiles? Of course not. Of course not. Uh, deadly weapons, weapons of mass destruction need to be regulated. Um, these uh, assault weapons are are basically no different than a bomb, except for they can be except that they can be specifically directed at specific people versus, you know, uh, the way a bomb goes off. These are inherently dangerous weapons of mass destruction, and they should be and must be regulated. And this court has acted so recklessly, so irresponsibly in expanding the, the extremist views or like basically embracing the extremist views of the far right part of the National Rifle Association. Now, there are members who are part of the NRA who are hunters, um, you know, traditionally have been hunters. No hunter uses those weapons to uh, to harvest a deer. No one would shoot a deer, you know, 15, 20, 30 times in a 60 second uh, uh, a blast of weapons. It is just uh, absolutely reckless. And this court, um, I should just say, this decision is before, this case is before the court, the case you mentioned uh, coming out of Texas, because four of the nine justices on that court voted to take that case up. And usually they only vote on to take those cases if they think they're going to prevail. So they think they have five out of the nine votes in order to strike down uh, these measures, which, um, you know, the, the far right wants to strike down. I think the American people will reject that decision. We'll see it for the political um, and reckless uh, decision it is if this court issues that decision. And we have to retake our constitution. We have to have conversations with our neighbors, with our friends, with our coworkers about how out of control, out of touch, and quite frankly, um, how um, extreme this Supreme Court is in addition to how compromised it is by this culture of um, corruption 
uh, where these uh, justices think that they're entitled to um, live this life of luxury um, underwritten by billionaires who are funding some of the same groups, not the NRA, for example, but some of the same groups, other groups that are writing uh, briefs to try to change our rights, limit our rights under the law. So, Lisa, just in the last couple of minutes, then, will this case where abused spouses and family members are now going to be subject to the abuser having assault weapons or anything like that, and it's just going to mean that a lot of women are going to be murdered by their by their spouses or boyfriends, and not to mention children and others as collateral damage. I mean, that is just going to happen. And yet these guys are going to sanctify that under this originalist uh, interpretation. Doesn't this case, though, expose the absurdity of originalism? And is that possible that you can peel off one of these uh, right-wing characters? Well, you'd have to peel off two. Um, but it's it's certainly possible. It does expose the absolute failure of that um, so-called doctrine, the the notion of originalism uh, being binding um, and and being used as a weapon to strike down um, common sense, reasonable regulations. Um, and so I I hope that the court does not rule the way um, the the fact that it took this case um, indicates, um, or you know the way that the the sort of the, the notion of doctrine, which is really theory or agenda um, that they put forward would um, mandate. But you're right. If this court goes ahead and issues a divided ruling, striking down these measures to protect the American people from violent people, violent men generally, um, who are subject to protective orders, who then would have access to weapons that they could use to murder their spouses, their families and others, I think the American people I mean, I, you know, we've seen that there was not an ability to overcome the right wing Republican um, blockade in, after Sandy Hook. But I think that we're in a new day. There's a new reckoning post Dobbs. And I think the American people will resoundingly reject um, the Supreme Court if it if it follows the course that it seems to be on. And I can't believe I mean, I, I can believe. But I mean, the idea that Amy Coney Barrett, a, a woman, would make women in this country so vulnerable to abusive spouses because they exist. Domestic violence is a huge problem. It's not a fringe issue. It's so, a, a leading cause of death for women in this country. To, it is? Um, well, you know, murdered by a spouse in terms of who who are the murderers. It's people they know. Um, of course, as you point out, it's not just that because in this uh, era since the Heller decision and since the assault weapons ban was allowed to expire by Republicans, we have so many mass shootings that some of them don't even make coverage for more than a few minutes on the evening news. Um, but these tragedies have an origin. The origins are both the individuals who are engaged in this sort of murderous violence and the laws that have been allowed to um, to be imposed on us by, uh, by you know, fringe ideas being embraced, this notion that people um, should have access to weapons of mass destruction that can kill dozens of people in less than a minute with, um, you know, rapid firing um, assault weapons. Um, and we need to, uh, we need to reject the politicians. And I would say in my personal capacity, we need to hold accountable every single politician that embraces that kind of extremism. Lisa Graves, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, who's executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate's Judiciary Committee, and as a deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Divisions for the U.S. Courts. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a preview of Wednesday's meeting between President Biden and China's Xi Jinping at the APEC summit just underway in San Francisco.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley. He's currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, and Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, a Novel of of exile. Welcome to Background Briefing, Orville Schell. Pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, Orville, you're in the Bay Area, and on Saturday, the APEC summit began, and on Wednesday, President Biden will be meeting with Xi Jinping, although it's not entirely confirmed, but I guess it's going to happen, and it'll happen at an undisclosed location for security reasons. So what's your expectations uh, in, in terms of the the main event, if you will, which is she and Biden meeting after an estrangement going back to the spy balloon. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, important that they do meet. After all, these uh, two countries, the U.S. and China, are the two most consequential countries in the world today and have been very estranged. Uh, However, that said, uh, despite the fact that I think Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party is interested in sort of, uh, uh, you know, trying to lower the temperature a bit and not become too severed from the global marketplace, uh, my expectations are somewhat modest about what will come out of uh, the summit. Uh, I think something will come out of it, but I don't think uh, we should expect any major sort of reset formatting. Uh, in the bilateral uh, 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 operating system. But is there something going on in as much as she needs a more stable relationship with the U.S., uh, and particularly with the rest of the, the Western world, to revitalize his economy, which is in trouble? I think you know, Xi Jinping has made a number of, of, of really grievous missteps, both within um, the management of his own economy to wit the handling of the COVID pandemic, the attacks on entrepreneurs, uh, you know, the, the deflationary spiral they're now in, the, the property market is, is in a very serious state of crisis. And as well is wolf warrior diplomacy of alienating countries around the world, which is completely unnecessary to alienate. I mean, Australia, Canada, Sweden, India, uh, Japan, Korea, all completely unnecessary and very deleterious, I might say, to to China's standing in the world and its connections to the global marketplace. So there's a lot of damage. And I think that's what is propelling Xi to San Francisco uh, to try to make nice a bit of a charm offensive. And I think a few things will be managed. Um, I think we may get a restoration of military to military relations and hotlines. There may be something on the fentanyl crisis. Kerry just met with Xie Jinhua, the climate negotiator in sunny lands on climate change. I think there'll be a few bells and whistles, but I don't think there's going to be any kind of a significant change in the uh, sort of overall attitude towards the two countries, which in China's case, the United States is a really a hostile foreign force. And the United States increasingly views China as a, as a competitor, even a threat. Well, if you watch the Republican presidential candidate debate, you certainly got that impression. Well, I think the Republicans have capitalized on, uh, you know, uh, sort of celebrating their antipathy for China, which is not entirely misplaced or a misjudgment. But uh, the part that I think that they have to be very careful they don't miss is that China is constantly in a state of change. And we never kind of predict the changes before they come. But we should be ready for them. And that's where diplomacy is important. And it's always important, even as you're pushing back, recognizing the threat and confecting deterrent strategies to keep the door open. Well, as much as you can tell what's going on inside of China, and of course Xi Jinping has made it more difficult for scholars like you, uh, China specialists, to get a handle on what's happening there, my understanding is that Xi Jinping is not popular, and he was quite nervous about 
the funeral of the former premier. So is it true that he's not particularly popular? And I imagine now he's taking advantage of U.S. diplomatic isolation over the Israel-Gaza war, where China is making strides. Apparently the Chinese have been leaning on the Iranians not to get involved in the war, and they may have a hand in this extraordinary meeting that's taking place now in Saudi Arabia between the Iranian president and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, and they've even rehabilitated Assad, who's also at the meeting. And the meeting is all about beating up on the U.S. Well, the the global proposition is in a parlous state of uh, uh, of, of inflection right now, which is too true. We've got not only the invasion of the Ukraine, now we've got the great whirlpool of of chaos in the Middle East. And of course, China uses all these things to its advantage. Uh, The one advantage of the Ukraine is, for China, is that it distracts Europe and NATO and the U.S. from, you know, concentrating on Asia. And then you throw the Israeli conflict into the mix, and you have two wars that are distracting the United States and the West from being able to, uh, you know, focus as we said we would, and Blinken still claims we are, uh, on the the challenges in Asia. So from that perspective, it's good for China. And China, of course, is running around the Middle East, uh, you know, making friends with Iran, and of course, they're already friends, and Saudi Arabia and whatnot. They're very opportunistic, very transactional. Uh, however, there also, as I said at the outset, there are a number of areas where they're not doing a particularly adept job at making friends, allies, partners, and friends around the world. And that is a real challenge to a country that's deeply dependent on the global marketplace. But just to address the popularity or the lack thereof of Xi Jinping, is there any anything happening in terms of the Chinese public opinion? Do the people have any sway in a country that's the most surveilled country on the planet? Uh, I think Xi Jinping has confected one of the most extraordinarily well-controlled techno-autocracies in world history, which means that there is limited prospect for people with dissenting opinions to be heard. That does not mean there are not dissenting opinions. And I think particularly amongst educated Chinese professional classes, entrepreneurs, uh, people who are in the tech field. Uh, There's a lot of grumbling going on. And uh, I've recently had some meetings with uh, fairly large groups of of Chinese. And once they get rolling, you hear an awful lot of criticism. But that doesn't mean that maybe the average person, middle class, you know, peasants, rural people, uh, are all riled up and ready to revolt. I think in a certain sense, uh, his support, as is in the case of someone like uh, Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in, 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 in Turkey, uh, rural support, I think, is still fairly strong. And uh, so it's a mixed bag. Xi Jinping's alienated a lot of the elite classes, but he's got a 90 million member party behind him, a very tight Marxist-Leninist structure borrowed from the Soviet Union that not even Putin has underneath him. And uh, so there's certain strengths to the system, but there's also immense numbers of brittle places where uh, it's very hard to predict the future. But with 23% youth unemployment, particularly from college graduates who can't find work, that's not a good sign. No, it is not a good sign. It, it's it's such a bad sign that the Chinese have ceased reporting on unemployment figures because they they feel it's too it creates too much dissension and 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 and, and too much anxiety. So again, the information systems of China are very closely managed by the Central Propaganda Department, and thus they can control news and information and do. And to that extent, they can keep things locked down quite tightly. But that does not mean that people are happy. Uh, And we see a lot of evidence, particularly of of wealthier people, better educated people, you know, heading quietly as they can to the doors. So back to the APEC summit in San Francisco, 
with the Wednesday meeting of Xi and Biden. Things have been rocky since the Chinese balloon was shot down uh, off the coast of uh, South Carolina. So one of the things about that, though, Orwell, which maybe you have better information than me, but I don't believe that... Did the U.S. ever really reveal what they found at the bottom of the ocean there? I mean, it seems like after all the hysteria about Chinese spy balloons, they never really did released what kind of equipment that balloon had. Have you yes, heard anything? I, I think that's right. And I think that bespeaks of Biden's, uh, you know, uh, recognition that one way or the other, we do need to come to terms with China. And that if you release the list of what was on that balloon, it might just sort of agitate and excite the situation more. So I think that bespeaks of his willingness to try to keep the temperature down, temper things a bit, find a way to get along with China somehow, but not surrender to it. And you see in the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, State Department, I mean, there's a lot of pushback against China. So you can't say that Biden is surrendering. Uh, and just yielding and dealing in panda hugging. But on the other hand, and I think uh, one has to admire him for taking this risk, he is trying to keep the diplomatic doors open so that he will be ready and we will be ready if some changes happen. And remember, history always moves on. And China has deep aquifers of other kinds of forces within it that are very much opposed to Xi Jinping that someday will re-express themselves when we don't know. But I think we do need to be ready and flexible enough and not alienate China for no reason. But on the other hand, we cannot surrender and we have to deter. We have to uh, uh, weave together our allies, partners and friends because deterrence is the best possible strategy uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, keeping keeping the status quo in peace. But in terms of the Republicans I mentioned earlier, the bellicose, hawkish crowd on the debate stage the other night, they also obsessed about TikTok. Is TikTok really spreading anti-Semitism? I mean, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in China itself coming out of this war with Israel and Hamas. What's your reading on that, Noel? Well, my reading is TikTok is spreading everything. TikTok is a Chinese company. Yes, TikTok is being manipulated by the party to some degree. But then, you know, the Republican Party is spreading a lot of falsity and lies. And, and you know, the, the, uh, this is just the modern horizon that the sort of high-speed social media landscape is a bit out of control in general. And uh, nobody, and then we have AI heaving too on the scene that can manipulate photographs and videos of one thing and another. So it's really hard to know what to do with all of this. Uh, what the Republicans have right about China is China is basically quite hostile now towards the United States. It needs to be confronted and it needs to be, if not contained, at least constrained. What they sometimes get wrong is they just go overboard and they forget that you know, uh, the world changes and doors do need to be left ajar enough to to transactionally use these moments to the advantage of our own national interests when they arise to, 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 to kind of lower the temperature a bit. And we may do that at, at San Francisco at APEC to some modest degree, but I'm not holding my breath on some big Nixon Kissinger uh, 1972 moment or some big breakthrough moment. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's in Xi Jinping's playbook. I don't think he has the capacity to to make that kind of a be that kind of a, a trans, transactionally, uh, you know, sort of monumental global leader. But uh, at the APEC summit, there'll be the leaders from Vietnam and the Philippines, Canada, Mexico, and in many ways. China's wolf warrior diplomacy and its hostility to the neighbors and clashes with the Philippines, Navy, etc. How much is the neighborhood against them, given the rest of the attendees at this APEC summit? Well, this is very interesting, 
the degree to which uh, the Philippines has drifted out of a, a friendlier relationship with China because China's belligerence and bellicosity and sort of occupation of islands that are right within uh, the EEZs of the Philippines. So that's a huge transition that we've undergone, much more favorably inclined to the U.S., Re reanimating the security treaty between the Philippines and the U.S. Uh, and allowing U.S. forces to position supplies and whatnot in islands close to Taiwan. The same thing's happened with Korea. For the first time, we've seen Korea and Japan meeting at Camp David with Biden and starting to bury the hatchet about World War II issues and colonialism and, and beginning to see under President Yoon and, and Prime Minister Kishida that, that it's more important for them to get together and confront China as a threat than it is to confront each other. So China is the catalytic agent, ironically, that's bringing India, the Philippines, Korea, Japan, and other countries more closely in alliance with the United States because they too feel the sort of hot breath of China's wolf warrior diplomacy on their necks. So just in closing then, Orville Shell, in San Francisco itself, I imagine there's a fairly substantial anti-communist constituency there from Taiwan and from the PRC itself. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, of course, has been criticized for backing Taiwan and having provocative visits to the island, etc. Is there any possibility of uh, Xi noticing that he's not entirely popular? Well, you know, in the last APEC summit in America took place in Seattle when Jiang Zemin was party general secretary. I remember well the streets were awash with protest. This time, I think because of the Hamas-Palestine-Israel, uh, uh, you know, problems, the streets may be filled with other kinds of protesters, and she would probably be happy to see that uh, rather than protests against him. And then there's the question of where is she going to meet with Biden? It looks like it could be someplace down on the peninsula or out of San Francisco itself. So the protesters don't even know where they're going to meet. So I don't know what's going to happen, uh, but I think she is. Providence has provided him with a Middle East crisis uh, at the very time he's coming here, which may diminish a bit the protests against him. Right, and a crisis that is helping him diplomatically uh, on the world stage and hurting the U.S. It already was not popular in terms of its stance over Ukraine in the global south, and it's even worse now. So. He certainly, Xi Jinping is also the winner of uh, the war between Israel and Hamas. Yes, Mao Zedong used to say, world in great disorder, excellent situation. And I think Xi Jinping would probably agree with him that the degree to which the world gets stirred up is, is, is a great advantage to China because it distracts uh, the United States and other, other uh, Western powers uh, from the, 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 the China challenge. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, great pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Orville Shell, who's formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley. He's currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of Chinese Leaders, and Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century and most recently, My Old Home, a novel of exile. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a local perspective on Joe Manchin, who has already sabotaged Biden's legislative agenda, and now having left the Senate, has undermined the Democrats' slim majority, and is poised to end Biden's presidency by likely running as a third-party candidate under the No Labels banner. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is James Van Nostrand, who is the chairman of the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities, who until recently was a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law. And he is the author of The Coal Trap, How West Virginia Was Left Behind in the Clean Energy Revolution. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Van Nostrand. Thanks, Ian. Good to talk to you. Well, thanks for joining us. And um, having uh, been in West Virginia, you've clearly gotten to know Joe Manchin. Uh, you've been on the other, other side of the political struggle there about clean energy. And I just find it extraordinary that Joe Manchin's priority was to get subsidies for fossil fuels at the expense of lifting families out of poverty in this country but and having American children go to bed hungry. What is it about this man that says that he's in the center, but his politics have skewed uh, to the point where he's been able to sabotage Joe Biden's legislative agenda? I gotta say, I've, I followed Senator Manchin. I was I was in West Virginia for 12 years from 2011 to 2023, so I followed his career fairly closely. I wrote a book called The Coal Trap, and I devoted a whole chapter to Joe Manchin. I, I gotta say, I don't. I'm not sure what what he stands for as a matter of of principles. He's very he's very transactional, um, and so I don't know if you were to say what it, what is the political philosophy of Joe Manchin. It's it's really what's good for Joe Manchin, frankly. It's not what's good for West Virginia. He could have done a lot more for West Virginia when he was the second most powerful person in America for a few months there, but he didn't really deliver all that much for West Virginia. So does he have an ego? I mean, it seems to me that he, along with Kirsten Sinema, really captured the limelight and were able to extract enormous amounts of concessions to the point, as I say, they were the saboteurs of Biden's agenda. We know, as much as we can figure out cinema, that she's just vain and in the thrall of wealthy people. But what about Manchin? Is his ego? What's driving him? Huge ego. Huge ego. I mean, I think it's the whole, his decision not to run for re-election. Um, he was going to get beaten pretty soundly, I think, by Jim Justice. And Joe Manchin's ego certainly could not tolerate the, the notion of losing to a country bumpkin like like Jim Justice. I mean, the polls were, were pretty bad in, his, in, in terms of his prospects for re-election. And so now he's turning his, his sights to, to testing the waters for potentially running for president. What that's all about, it's an ego project. He, he loved the attention. He loved having all that attention when he was holding Joe Biden's energy bills hostage and, and basically getting what he wanted in the Inflation Reduction Act. He loves that attention, and he's going to lose that platform when he doesn't get re-election. So he's going to just He's going to just appear around the country and pretend like he's running for president. Well, he's now that he's quit the Senate, his Senate seat, as you say, probably because he knows he's going to lose, that, of course, has put the Democrats in a precarious situation in terms of holding on to the Senate, and we can certainly talk about that. But he's already hinted that he's going to go around the country and explore the political center. Well, that's a lie. I mean, that's a hoax. There is no center left in this country. The only center would be in the Democratic Party, but in Trump's Republican Party, they've moved so far to the right that you need a telescope to find them. Yeah, and I and I, I think it goes back to the point I made about you know what is Joe Manchin's political philosophy? I mean, it's very transactional. Um, he kind of he kind of transitioned from being a coal guy into being more of a natural gas, more fossil fuels guy, um, but. It's all transactional. It's all about what's good for Joe Manchin. It's all about good what's you know exposure for Joe Manchin, making him look like a hero. So it, it, when you think about running for president, well, what is your platform, Joe Manchin? Because you've been all over the place, um, depending upon what's what's been good for you. But in terms of this No Labels group, which he's already a, he's a part of No Labels, along with uh, Mark Penn, who really runs it, uh, along with his wife, who's the sort of fronting along with former Senator Lieberman, and if he joins them, which I think he will, as a Democrat, then they'll find a Republican to, uh, you know, maybe yeah, probably Hogan. Larry Hogan. Yeah, yeah Larry, Larry Hogan, Hogan from Maryland, or, or John Huntsman, the former governor of Utah and the former yeah. ambassador to China. Yeah. Right, and they've appeared together, Manchin and Huntsman. Yep. So yep. 
The problem, though, with no labels is that they are actually on a lot of ballots. So they're serious. They're getting on all the swing state ballots. Um, And the long and the short of it is that they will take votes away from independents and disaffected Republicans who would be holding their nose and voting for Democrats, as happened in in the last election. And that's Biden's best chance because the the numbers are pretty bad. And Trump's actually ahead of Biden. So there's no question that no labels will sink Biden. I mean, what do you think? It's um, it's not clear. I mean, you also got the wild card of Bobby Kennedy. I mean, the, some of the recent polls I saw, he's he's drawn 16 percent of the vote in the nationwide polls and as high as 25 percent in some states, 21 percent in in Pennsylvania. That's another wild card. And it's not clear who's who's. Um, Bobby Kennedy is drawing votes from because you have a lot of the sort of anti-vaxxer fringe that are pretty much uh, Trump folks, but then you've got some old-line Democrats who just love the Kennedy name. I mean, you could have a, a couple of uh, third-party candidates and, and really mix things up um, in a very unpredictable way. Well, I, just anecdotally, James, um, I know a lot of uh, Democrats who are voting for Kennedy even though the Republicans and Trump have said that he's he's going to hurt them, I think he's going to draw probably more votes from Democrats. And then you have to add Jill Stein, who's now running yep. again, and she'll yep. for the green ticket, along with Cornell West as an independent. And, you know, Jill Stein, whether or not she's working for the Kremlin again, I don't know. She certainly was last time around. Right. Where, where she uh, basically, in the three key states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, uh, Hillary Clinton lost to Trump by fewer votes than uh, Jill Stein received. So that's um, this is just piling on, right? If you add Kennedy, Stein, Cornell West, and no labels, that's really piling on to defeat yeah, Trump, it, Biden, isn't it? It's really gonna re- yeah, it's really going to require a state-by-state analysis. I mean, there's clearly no way any third-party candidate is going to win when you look at the Electoral College. But but state-by-state analysis, there's no question that, that these that these candidates can pull enough votes away to potentially tilt one state one or the other. And, and the polls seem to indicate it's going to be a very close election between Trump and Biden if they are the two, they're the two nominees. So... Um, now, I think No Labels is still is still working on trying to get a an acceptable Republican nominee. I just heard Larry Hogan on on the on MSNBC a few a few days ago. I mean, I think that's where they're going, but that doesn't seem that doesn't seem very likely. But I'm not I'm not sure No Labels is 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 in it for sure. But but that doesn't mean Manchin's not going to miss the opportunity to go out and and get a lot of attention and and toy with the idea of running for president because he just he just loves the loves the attention. Well, Biden's already said that no labels uh, will help the other guy, referring to Trump. And Nancy Pelosi has accused no labels of being perilous to U.S. democracy. So they're taking it pretty seriously. Yes, I mean it, it's it's going to be it's going to be a close election, no question. And and you're suggesting though that because of the electoral college, that nobody will have to be a clear winner that'll get thrown to the house. And if it's thrown to the House, it's not the number of Republicans versus Democrats. It'll be the number of state legislatures controlled by Republicans or, or Democrats. And, and exactly. that, that means that Republicans will win because they have more state yeah. legislatures. Yeah. Now, you talk about a constitutional crisis. If no one gets 270 electoral votes and it goes to the House of Representatives, then it's just going to be a, a, a complete mess. Um, no, it's very... It, very interesting times, very perilous times, I would say. Obviously, Joe Manchin doesn't have a national appeal. And do you think he's he really wants to be the guy that he's already been the guy that sabotaged Biden's legislative agenda? Does he want to be the guy that brings back Donald Trump? Um, Donald Trump would probably make him secretary of energy, which I think was dangled before him before. I mean, I, I don't, Joe Manchin doesn't care about it those those things joe manchin cares about what's good for joe manchin so if that's a consequence of giving him an opportunity to have a capital level position then then so be it but i think i think that would be a, a possible outcome would be if trump gets reelected and joe manchin's secretary of energy and guess what he's relevant again 
So he's 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 just like Mark Penn then, one of these Washington operators that are all about about lining their pockets and staying in power and being well, I think relevant. That's one of the reasons, I think that's one of the reasons he's running so poorly on the polls against Jim Justice is, you know, Justice is your basic rube who's going to be really popular in West Virginia with his baby dog that he holds up and is probably his biggest uh, asset on the campaign trail. Um, Justice is, a, is, your, is your basic West Virginian, and West Virginians love him. He's very popular. And I think Joe Manchin is now a slick Washington politician who drives his Maserati back and forth between the Senate office building and his yacht parked in the, in the harbor over there. I mean, that's not – those aren't West Virginia values. He's become a – He's become a Washington insider, and that just doesn't play very well in West Virginia. And Jim Justice does. I mean, that, that race would not be close if Manchin would have would have stayed in there. He barely beat Patrick Morrissey when he ran eight, six years ago. I and mean, Patrick Morrissey was a carpetbagger who moved from New Jersey in 2012. And six years later, he he almost beat Joe Manchin. Um, and Man- Morrissey's a pretty weak candidate, so, but Manchin barely won in 2018. Now he's, he'd be running as a very, very popular Republican governor, so... The writing was on the wall. He had to find another, another angle to stay relevant. But uh, Jim Justice is a coal baron, isn't he? Yes. Well, so why why, why do the why do these poor people in West Virginia like a coal baron? Um, he's. I mean, he, his motto when he ran for re-election in 2020 was Jim Justice. He never gave up on coal. I mean. He says all the all the right things to appeal to the coal miners. The coal jobs are coming back. I mean, he switched from being a Democrat to Republican when Trump was elected and said the coal miners are going to come back to work. All of a sudden, Jim Justice becomes a, a Republican. So he says all the things that the coal industry wants to wants to hear. Um, and he owns the Greenbrier, which is you know the, a five star resort in, in in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. So he's 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 very 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 well liked, and the coal industry just really has a lot of has a lot of influence in West Virginia. It's uh, that's why I titled my book "The Coal Trap." West Virginia just can't seem to move beyond coal, and certainly when Joe Manchin was governor, he never did anything to help the state move beyond coal. Even though he knows the energy industry well enough, he could have done a lot to help the state move beyond coal, but he didn't. And so it's still, even though there's fewer than twelve thousand coal miners currently working in West Virginia. It still has outsized influence, and Justice is a real coal guy. I mean, Manchin has become more of a natural gas guy, right? I mean, he got the Mountain Valley Pipeline approved. That's a natural gas project. No one in the coal industry in West Virginia wanted the Mountain Valley Pipeline to be built, but that's Manchin's you know, legacy in terms of the, his last accomplishment as the U.S. senator is, is getting a bill passed that specifically carves out the Mountain Valley Pipeline so the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act don't apply in West Virginia because we've got to get the Mountain Valley Pipeline built. Well, the coal industry doesn't like that. Well, it's pretty depressing, though, that the worst polluting station resource that's identifiable are coal plants, and they should have been banned decades ago given the crisis yeah. of global warming. So yeah. this is pretty depressing that there's anybody out there championing coal, let alone a governor of a state. Well, West Virginia's electricity supply is still 91% coal-fired as of 2021. No state in the country even comes close. Um, and those coal plants are, are still running. I mean, no one's building any new coal plants, but I think the share of coal in terms of generation of electricity in the United States is, is down around 15% right now. Not in West Virginia. It's 91%. And and the ratepayers in West Virginia are paying the consequences for because coal is just not a cost-effective way to generate electricity. But Jim Justice has his people appointed to the Public Service Commission in West Virginia, and they're going to keep the coal plants running, and the ratepayers will pay. Well, James Van Nostrand, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yep, thank you, Ian. It's great. And we've been speaking with James Van Nostrand, who is the chairman of the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities, who was previously a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law, and he's the author of The Coal Trap, How West Virginia Was Left Behind in the Clean Energy Revolution. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Thank you.